This is hell. It's been coming up a lot lately on the show, but it's true. The United States has one of the most effective, if not the most effective, propaganda system in the world, which is evidenced by Assange's imprisonment. The U.S. propaganda machine is so effective, most Americans do not believe it exists. And you know how propaganda from other countries seems so heavy-handed and unbelievable? That's how people in other countries think of us. That's the way they view our propaganda, which is very evident to them. That's because propaganda is always more obvious to outsiders compared to those who have been immersed in it their entire life, so much so that they don't even recognize it. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, do you have any plans for your upcoming weekend? Uh, I know, it's hard, right? It's, 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 it's like three Wednesday's, days away. Yeah, Wednesday's really, really early. So. <laughs> I know, it's kind of hard to figure out what the hell you're going to do. No, the coolest thing I'm doing is tonight, uh, the Goodman Theater, we got free tickets for uh, a play called Revolution. It was written by... Uh, Bill Ayers and Catherine Dorn, uh, oh, no Dorn's son, music by Tom Morello at the Goodman. So that's gonna be fun, but that's gonna be tonight, not this weekend. This weekend, I just my, my mind can't think ahead. So, but the re- that sounds good. Revolution, uh, Tom Morello, and uh, pass by past guest Bill Ayers on the show. So, uh, yeah, Bill was fantastic on the yeah, show. Yeah, it's his son who's doing the who, who like wrote the play. I think. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because he did that podcast on his parents too. That oh, that's really right. Too. Yeah, it's the son. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. My weekend and Chris's is going to be a bit longer this coming weekend because. Next week, we are starting our week not on Monday. Instead, catch us here at thisishell.com on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time in Chicago and podcast shortly after each day. That means the Patreon podcast, which we will be telling you more about later, uh, streams live this week on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. our time and his podcast shortly after. But next week, Patreon happens on Friday at the same time. So I haven't decided what I'm going to be doing this weekend because there's a lot of weekend coming up and I got a a lot of stuff on my punch list, as in I want to punch myself every time I look at my very stressful to-do-or-die list. I'm really getting sick of looking at that list. But more important than me not knowing exactly what my future holds, Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what special kind of hell should Kissinger, Henry Kissinger that is, suffer for all eternity? We will share your question from hell answers as posted, uh, what are we doing today? Uh, oh, Discord and, yeah, so as on Discord and any stragglers that happen to be around. Uh, coming up after our best of 2023 conversation with Stefania Angelina Assange, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merch you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell uh, by tweeting it at us at This Is Hell Radio, leaving it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, posting it at our Facebook group page, Welcome to the Hell Hole. If you are a subscriber to Patreon, posting it at Patreon, patreon.com slash This Is Hell, or in our Discord community, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Chris, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? 
Jeff decides to redeem the human race for the holidays. And I want to thank Jeff for that. I got to get a thank you card. Uh, so coming up, Julian Assange is being tortured as a political prisoner, and supposedly Democratic nations and their media could not care less. Chris shares more of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what will be happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll let's see anything. Oh, we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show. And of course, Jeff Dorcher with a moment of truth. This is not the media. This is hell. And this is an easy one. You can tell this is not the media because right now we're going to start playing an interview about Julian Assange on our Best of 2023 series. This is hell. One of the things that's really undervalued here in the United States is a free press. For close to 13 years, Julian Assange has been under arrest and in confinement for revealing government secrets about criminality, including war crimes, as well as corruption and state surveillance. With the help of Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, we have learned how government agencies worked with telecom companies to spy on citizens. We learned about the killings of innocent unarmed Iraqis by the U.S. military. Just go to WikiLeaks' Wikipedia page and look at the long, long, long laundry list of scandals that have arisen due to WikiLeaks' revelations. So what is behind the persecution of Assange and WikiLeaks? Here to help us have a better understanding, we are very fortunate to have the return of Il Fatto Quotidiano investigative journalist Stefano Marizzi, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Stefania. Thank you so much, Chuck, and thank you to This Is Hell. I'm very glad for your interest and happy to discuss this case, which is basically, you know, there is so much silent about this case, in, in the, especially in the U.S. and in the U.K. as well. In Europe, it might be different. There is a kind of uh, large support movement, but in the U.S. and in the U.K. is rather seriously problematic. What do you think leads to that lack of activism in the U.S. and U.K. when it comes to Julian Assange? What's What do you think is the difference between what is taking place in Europe? What causes the difference when it comes to activism? Uh, when we, we see Europe having this big activist movement around supporting Julian Assange, but in the U.S. and the U.K. we don't. Well, this is a very important question, actually. I think the, the real matter here is uh, the press coverage. There is basically very little press coverage. I can tell you that uh, basically many of my friends in the U.S. tell me, well, people, ordinary people don't know about Julian Assange WikiLeaks. They don't really know what he has done, what he has published. And we are not speaking about uneducated people. We are not speaking about people living in the middle of nowhere in some rural place with no access to, um, you know, press coverage and so on. We are thinking, uh, we are talking about educated people and they have no uh, serious in depth information about this case because it is barely covered. I can give you an example. When 
we discovered this serious espionage activities inside the embassy. We, Julian Assange, his lawyers, his doctors, uh, the WikiLeaks journalists, and we journalists who were visiting him inside the embassy were uh, spied, were uh, seriously targeted. My phone was uh, opening too, and my um, SIM card was extracted from my phone secretly while uh, I was talking to Julian. Julian Assange was an I was in a different room and someone else in in um, in the embassy uh, got access to my backpack uh, got access to my devices and secretly accessed them so we know this because there are videos there are photos and so on so we have evidence of this and of course this is a big scandal according to the this is the kind of surveillance and the espionage activities that you expect in a in an authoritarian state against journalists, you know, in if you go to dictatorship or authoritarian societies, you have this kind of situation with this kind of attacks and uh, surveillance of journalists. But you don't expect this in London against um, journalists working for Western media and from Western newspapers. Um, against the company which allegedly did it on CIA behalf, because as far as we know, there are protected witnesses who testified that this company did it on CIA behalf. They started working for the CIA. Well, uh, there were journalists, even US journalists targeted by these activities and they never filed a criminal complaint. They never reported on the case and there was no press coverage with the exception of maybe one article, maybe a couple of articles in the US. And there is a deafening silence about this. This is uh, gives you a measure of uh, the black hole in the US and in the UK as well about uh, this case. Uh, another example, which I think is uh, really unbelievable, is that it took an Italian journalist to investigate this case and to discover that the UK authorities had put pressure on the Swedish prosecutors, had basically advised them not to go to London to question Julian Assange on the alleged rape allegations. And this basically is the reason why there was this legal and diplomatic paralysis which kept Julian Assange for nine years, for years inside the embassy. Well, it took an Italian journalist to discover this. And I, uh, I did this suing the UK authorities. And you can, you can ask yourself why it took an Italian journalist this kind of investigative work should have been done by the UK journalists. They have sources inside the Crown Prosecution Service. They have resources. Uh, see, um, very likely much more resources than an Italian journalist working for a major newspaper in Italy, but still uh, a minor newspaper compar compared to the uh, big uh, outlets like BBC, like The Guardian, like uh, Reuters and so on. So it took an Italian journalist completely alone to do it. 
And this gives you a measure of how bad we we are with this case, with the most important outlet, which basically did uh, very little to cover this case. They did absolutely nothing to investigate this case. And uh, so there is uh, no proper press coverage. There is no proper uh, public debate on this case. You, the, the award-winning um, filmmaker Ken Loach writes in the foreword, this is a book that should make you very angry. And he's right. This book should make us all very angry. To you, what explains why a journalist imprisoned and treated with unbearable cruelty for exposing war crimes would not also anger members of the media? What does it say to you about the media when they're seemingly not angry and have not been for nearly 13 years since Assange's arrest? Why is the press not angry about the case of Julian Assange? Well, this is also a great question, actually. This is a great question. Why they are not so angry? Why it took 12 years before the five top publications, the New York Times, the Guardian, El Pais, Le Monde, Der Spiegel um, appeal called on the Biden administration to drop the espionage case against Julian Assange. They they had, uh, you know, they had a huge benefit from this publication. They work, we work on these documents, the Afghan war logs, uh, the Iraq war logs, the US diplomacy cables, the Guantanamo files. It was a big scoop. And we, I mean, we had, uh, an important uh, competitive advantage thanks to these documents. And yet, uh, basically, these five top uh, publications uh, waited for 12 years before speaking out. Why? Well, it's, um, it's an important question. I believe there are several factors. Uh, and um, one of the important factors is that they, the demonization campaign against Julian Assange has seriously undermined his support because he has been represented, he has been depicted from the very beginning uh, as, a, as a journalist who put in uh, lives at risk and 13 years later, we don't have a single victim. We don't have anyone who was tortured or was put in prison or was killed or was arrested as a result of these publications, of the WikiLeaks publications. And we don't, and yet Julian Assange has been characterized as a reckless publisher, as a reckless journalist who put lives at risk. Then he was demonized because of these allegations of rape. And again, we after uh, nine years, the Swedish authorities waited for nine years before closing this investigation. And this investigation was closed without any charge, without anything. They waited and waited. They postponed the, the questioning of Julian Assange. They 
trapped in, in these uh, nine years of arbitrary detention is not my opinion, Chuck, that he was arbitrarily detained. It's the opinion, the decision of the UN body in charge of establishing who he is arbitrarily detained. And when this body establishes that uh, uh, an activist, a journalist, or maybe a politician, or maybe... Uh, a writer in uh, Russia or China or Iran is arbitrarily detained. Uh, the world <laughs> take the UN body seriously, but when they said that Julian Assange was arbitrarily detained, no one cared. And uh, newspapers reported that this uh, decision by the UN authorities were no re was not really mandatory, was not uh, legally binding, and so on. So there has always been a pretext not to stay in solidarity with Julian Assange and not to speak out for Julian Assange, whether it was the lives at risk, whether it was the rape allegations, whether it was the allegations of being of having a Russian connection. Again, no evidence whatsoever that there is a, a connection between WikiLeaks and Russia, or whether it was the allegation of being bad with Trump. And again, we have seen that at the end of the day, it was the Trump administration who charged Julian Assange. It was not the Obama or the Biden administration. So every time in the last 13 years, Every time there was a pretext not to speak out, not to defend, not to side with Julian Assange. And as a result, the the life and freedom of Julian Assange has been destroyed. This is a matter of fact. So it seems obviously pretty cynical, the campaign against Julian Assange. You mentioned the rape allegations. You mentioned the allegations of having connections to Russia. You mentioned the allegations of having a connection to the Trump, the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. These all seem to be targeted campaigns when it comes to those who might be liberals, who might be, you know, left-leaning centrists, uh, not uh, accusations that would necessarily annoy or bother people who are right-wing or conservative. Of course, everybody is against rape, but the idea is that if a woman comes forward and says that she has been raped, you should side with the woman or the victim in, in the rape scandal. So. How much do you think this, uh, the campaign uh, to demonize Julian Assange is about splitting the supporters that he might have on the left, that he might have that are liberals? Are these cynical campaigns to uh, divide the left's support for Julian Assange? Yeah. So first of all, let me tell you, you mentioned that uh, whether a woman go to the police and um, and basically <clears throat> file a complaint for rape, actually they w the two women never went to the police filing a complaint for rape. They went there to ask Julian Assange to have um, a, a text uh, test for uh, sexually transmitted illnesses. So it was the Swedish police which treated um, the the woman uh, the woman uh, as 
being raped. <laughs> That's very interesting. I I have dedicated many years working on this uh, on the Swedish case, among other things. And I'm not the only one who has investigated this case. Uh, the even the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture uh, investigated this the Swedish case and uh, got access to part of the documentation. I got access to some important documentation only thanks to a lengthy FOI litigation, which uh, has been going on uh, since 2015, basically. So it has requested more than seven years. So we got a precise understanding of what went wrong in Sweden. And we have tried, as a, me as a journalist and the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, as a UN investigator on human rights, we try to get explanation from the Swedish authorities, from the UK authorities, and none of us obtain an explanation. I um, absolutely recommend um, the book of uh, the UN Special Rapporteur Nils Melzer and his letter to the Swedish and UK authorities, because he uh, spelled down all suspicious facts, all highly anomalous facts in this Swedish investigation. And he investigated this investigation as a, the Swedish investigation on rape as a U.S. special rapporteur on torture. So uh, this demonization campaign, I believe that part is, uh, you know, the usual superficiality of the press, the usual, usual uh, superficiality of the media. They don't uh, basically, you realize how wrong the international journalism got this case when you think that uh, there was just a journalist, just one, <laughs> an Italian journalist, uh, who investigated this case, getting access to the documentation. When I was working, when Julian had already spent five years uh, under investigation in Sweden, and there was no progress whatsoever, this, the Swedish investigation was completely paralyzed. Uh, an, an Italian prosecutor told me, while this case doesn't make any progress and Julian Assange has been under investigation since 2010 and there is no progress whatsoever after five years. And I replied to the Italian prosecutor, well, it, the case doesn't make any process, progress because the Swedish prosecutors don't want to go to London to question him and to decide whether to charge him or whether to drop the rape case. And the, the Italian prosecutor told me, this is uh, highly anomalous. It doesn't work this way. I mean, we Italian prosecutors went to Brazil to question very dangerous people, mafia people. So why these uh, Swedish prosecutors cannot fly to London, question him, and to charge him if they really have the evidence of rape? and to extradite him, to put him on trial in Sweden. You should discover why they don't do it. And so I, I realized at that point that no one had tried to do it. No one. No, I mean, hundreds of journalists were reporting on the case, and none of them had access to the documentation on the case. I tried to get to request it. So I started my FOI 
trench warfare <laughs> to to get access to this documentation because no journalists in the world that tried to do it. And this tells you a lot. They were just, I mean, reporting what the, the prosecutors were saying and what the Julian Assange defense was saying. They were not digging. None of the journalists was digging into this case, trying to not just to report what one side says and what the other side says you know this is there is a famous uh, there is a famous um, uh, adage on the on the mission of journalists if someone says that it's raining and another one says uh, you know there is the sun it's not raining it is not your uh, uh, the mission of a journalist not reporting both sides it's raining, it's not raining. It is uh, uh, opening the window, at the window and check what is true. And that's what no one did. So it took an Italian journalist to do this. And this provides you an evidence of how superficial, how wrong journalism in these days. Uh, so part is due to this superficiality, this... Um, a lack of serious journalistic work. And let me tell you, I hope my life and freedom will never ever be in the hands of journalists like this, because, you know, when your life is on angst on balance, you really want journalists who work on the case seriously, who dig in the case, who try to get evidence, try to understand what's really going on. Part of this is superficiality, and part of this, I would say, is part of a campaign, because pro probably you need a lot of resources and players to, uh, to have such a demonization campaign. I have seen what happened in 2010, when the Pentagon accused Julian Assange immediately and WikiLeaks, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, uh, of having bloods, blood on their hands after publishing the Afghan war logs. Well, that was very obviously um, uh, a demonization campaign run by the Pentagon, trying to depict Julian Assange and WikiLeaks as reckless, as uh, dangerous people. And uh, I expected that kind of campaign, of course, because <laughs> I expected that the military authorities trying to demonize and destroy their credibility, uh, both ethically and professionally. What I didn't expect was uh, the uncritical approach by the media repeating uh, uh, these uh, allegations of putting lives at risk without any evidence uh, whatsoever. So just repeating what the uh, war propaganda machine was telling about Julian Assange being reckless. I don't think the media did a, a, um, a good service to the truth in this case, because you don't repeat critically what the, what the Pentagon says. Clearly, the Pentagon had an obvious interest in, in depicting Julian Assange as a dangerous guy, as WikiLeaks, as a reckless media organization, or even worse, as a spy organization. Let's not forget that Mike Pompeo, uh, the then head of the CIA, accused WikiLeaks of being a foreign intelligence and um, 
uh, and hostile intelligence service rather than a media organization. So I expected this kind of attacks from the Pentagon, from the CIA and so on, but I didn't expect the superficial and a critical approach by the worldwide media establishment. And uh, as you were saying earlier, and as was reported in late November, the United States should end its prosecution of Julian Assange, leading media outlets from the United States and Europe that had collaborated with the WikiLeaks founder, uh, citing press freedom concerns. Editors and publishers of The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Mans, Der Spiegel, El Pais, said in an open letter, quote, the indictment against Assange sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. So are, Stefania, in your opinion, do you think uh, media, uh, major media outlets around the world, are, are they turning on governments and other interests that have criminalized Assange? And does this mean we will begin to possibly start seeing more favorable reporting on Assange and WikiLeaks uh, through these media outlets? Well, I think at the they, at the eleventh hour, they realize that we are the next. We, the traditional journalists, will be the next after Julian Assange. We will be the next, and if we publish the next cable gate, the next collateral murder, the next Afghan war logs will be uh, destroyed as Julian Assange has been because he has been destroyed. So uh, probably. Uh, now that uh, the extradition approaches, because it's a matter of months and uh, his life will be, you know, his destiny will be finally decided, will be, he will be extradited or he will be uh, free. Uh, as the extradition approaches, probably the New York Times, probably the Guardian, probably uh, El Pais, Le Monde, Der Spiegel realize that the, the day they have the next collateral murder, the day they have uh, a source with who provide them the next cable gate, uh, well, they will be in a very uh, bad situation and they will face uh, charges as Julian Assange did. So uh, this probably is changing their approach now, but I, I, I wonder whether it is too late because we have seen they had 13 years to speak out and they haven't for 13 years with very few noble exception, with very few individual exception, they haven't uh, uh, spoken out, they haven't uh, uh, condemned the treatment of Julian Assange, we had, which has been horrific. Let me tell you, I have been there from the very beginning. So I have seen how he felt have been destroyed and it has been very very sad because we uh, journalists like me were reporting on his uh, uh, on the destruction of his health and nothing was happening we were denouncing his treatment we were denouncing his uh, health collapsing and nothing was happening and there was no reaction no serious uh, um, no serious reaction from the mainstream media from the uh, politics uh, the, from the now we have seen a large, you know, large organization for um, in defense of human rights, which promotes human rights, 
which are speaking out for Julian Assange, like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and virtually all the, the press freedom and human rights organizations are speaking out for Julian Assange. But it took 13 years. 13 years to the, to achieve this, you know? It's an unbelievable, incredible story. Had I not seen this story, had I not seen these facts with my eyes from the very beginning, I couldn't have believed that uh, this was real. I would have thought, well, maybe there is something I don't know, some secret aspects I don't know. Maybe there something happened with, I don't know. But this is what really happened. A man exposed war crimes, a man, uh, journalists exposed uh, serious human rights violations, torture, and he has never known freedom again. After 13 years, he's still there in a high security prison in London. You write that, every, as you were just pointing out, every major press freedom and human rights organization has come out in Assange's support, and the growing empathy from the public is palpable. But, as you point out, it has taken so very long, and the price he has paid is so very high, and he is still in prison. What does this reveal to you about the power of human rights groups and press freedom groups and their ability to protect the public from abuse, especially in the case of Assange, where everyone is fully aware of what is happening, and it is happening basically in public for all to see. If it's taken 10, 12, 13 years to raise attention, to get the public to recognize the brutality and cruelty of the state in punishing someone who revealed the state's cruelty and brutality, how much power and influence do human rights and press freedoms groups really have in so-called democracies if it's taken this long just to raise attention when it comes to Julian Assange? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, as I said, for over a decade, Julian Assange had any empathy from the public, from the major human rights organization, press freedom organizations, um, seriously undermined. Because uh, if you read, for example, the the book by uh, UN Special Rapporteur Nitz Medzer, you can understand that even a sophisticated uh, human rights investigator like Nitz Medzer was basically you know, influenced by this demonization campaign. And when he received the first request to intervene in the, in this case, he just didn't want to hear about uh, this case. He thought, uh, well, he's a rapist, he's a kind, he's a hacker, he's a narcissist, why I should care about him? I, I don't want to be manipulated by such um, sinister figure. So even a sophisticated human rights investigator like the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture was influenced by this demonization campaign. And this is why it took so many years, so many years over a, a decade to reach a consensus that what Julian Assange has experienced in the last 
13 years is a brutal persecution. Now, after 10 years, 10 years we, we have seen this uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, the, the uh, International Federation of Journalists and so on, uh, reacting to this and speaking out. But it took so long precisely because of this demonization campaign. You write that it is not just governments, armies, and secret services that hate them and see them as enemies, that is, WikiLeaks. They are equally feared by powerful economic financial institutions, often in league with diplomats and intelligence agencies, as the most profitable financial operations thrive in secrecy. Is the biggest, most important revelation by WikiLeaks that relationship between governments, armies, secret services, economic financial institutions in league with diplomats and intelligence agencies to allow the most profitable within the military industrial complex to operate in secret and without any public oversight is the most important revelation in WikiLeaks, by WikiLeaks, that relationship globally? And has the press made that connection? Have they reported on that relationship? Well, actually, I think it is a well-known uh, fact. It's a, it's a matter of fact, which is well-known. What WikiLeaks provided is some important example, like, for example, when in Haiti, the local uh, uh, the local um, textile com um, textile companies uh, working for the major um, uh, garment factories for the major uh, garment uh, brands uh, were basically were opposing the minimum salaries for the very poor workers in Haiti and, uh, and the US diplomacy was supporting them was supporting this uh, opposition to the to raising the minimum to establishing a minimum salary and the exploitation was uh, horrible so that cable is very very interesting to re to document the brutality of US capitalism supported by the most powerful diplomacy in the world, the U.S. diplomacy. Other important revelations, for example, were the the um, international the international trade agreements. Like I remember very well, TISA. Uh, this uh, international trade agreement was so secret that basically the uh, European parliamentarian were not allowed to read the text of these agreements. So when we got access to this uh, documentation, uh, we were in very serious difficulties in talking about this because uh, the parliament not even the parliamentarian knew the text of this of the draft of of these agreements it was so secret it was so you know such a well guarded secret that not even the the parliaments and the parliamentarians had access to it and once again you realize the importance of how secrecy shield any chance of transparency when it comes to uh, economics, uh, when it comes to uh, the military industrial complex. That's why I call my book Secret Power. You could call it, uh, I mean, secret power is not a conspiracy theory. It's not, uh, I absolutely avoided 
to mention the deep state, which has become a kind of conspiracy where you can put all sorts of entities and so on. Um, it has been completely hijacked by the far right uh, conspiracy theorists. And uh, I use secret power basically to uh, to uh, to refer to the military industrial complex which is a, which is not a conspiratorial entity and uh, i stress how secrecy is abuse and uh, this military industrial complex uses secrecy not to protect the the security of citizens but rather to protect state criminality at the highest level and to um, avoid that the institution, the officials involved in these uh, serious state criminalities uh, get accountable to the public and get, you know, get uh, basically were put under trial, get a uh, uh, final sentence, uh, get convicted. This secrecy is uh, highly abused. If you look at the WikiLeaks revelation, all these revelations are not about uh, military secrets uh, for uh, protecting the citizens, uh, protecting citizens from, you know, uh, terrorist attacks and so on. These are about state crimes. So these are about the CIA renditions. These are about the, the ex uh, extrajudicial killings by drones. So the secrecy is, is abused to protect state criminals, not to protect the citizens, <laughs> citizens from uh, attacks, from terrorists and so on. Uh, just two more questions for you, Stefania. I know you're limited on time. You write that secret power does not want to destroy Julian Assange alone. It wants to destroy him, the WikiLeaks journalist, and ultimately to kill a revolution. There is no freedom of the press if journalists are not free to uncover and report state criminality without ending up dead or imprisoned for life. Under authoritarian regimes, it is not possible to do so without facing severe consequences. But in a truly non-authoritarian society, this must be permitted. So to what degree does WikiLeaks reveal that Western nations are not democracies, that their governments are indeed authoritarian? And is that why WikiLeaks is so feared and punished by governments around the world? Because they take the mask off of democracy, uh, of, of, of the democracy that you know people think are democracies, and actually reveal authoritarian states. Is the biggest threat to that revealing, it is the biggest threat to you know the powers that be revealing the brutality of yeah. U.S. capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of fact that they uh, revealed the, <laughs> the brutality of this power and uh, they revealed that you can have the best prosecutors like the Italian prosecutors who nailed the CIA agents uh, responsible for the extraordinary rendition of Abu Omar, a Milan cleric who was kidnapped in Milan in the, in the middle of the day and he was brutally tortured in Egypt and our prosecutors were fantastic they were uh, tremendously e uh, efficient and they were able to identify all CIA rend um, rendition teams or uh, all the CIA agents of the rendition team they were able to charge them they were able to put them on trial in absentia because these guys had left Italy of course and they got final sentences however None of these people, none of these CIA agents went uh, 
to prison. They were they had free as the air, and of course we could have imagined that the, the U.S. authorities had intervened on Italian politics to grant them impunity. But without WikiLeaks, we could have never ever obtained the evidence. Maybe in forty years' time, fifty years' time when no one cares anymore, of course, because it's so far away and you know, it's so, you know, it's so old knowledge that you don't care. So the, the, the importance of WikiLeaks was to expose this, to provide evidence that even in the best situation where you have an efficient judiciary, when you have very independent prosecutor, very independent judges, and uh, the and justice works, and you have a committed uh, prosecutors and judge uh, uh, convicting these uh, state criminals, but you still get nowhere because uh, these people are above the law, and they they are not accountable to anyone. So. I'm convinced that the secret power is terrified. It's terrified because uh, the the Wiki, Julian Assange WikiLeaks exposed all this. It's in, in plain sight. No one can deny that this is happening not in Russia or China or North Korea or, or Iran. This is happening in our democracies. And uh, so they, they provide the evidence of this ugly face, the face which is so ugly that we don't want to see it. We don't want to to admit it. We want to live in the in the um, you know in the illusion that uh, we are different we are ch- much better which of course we are different we are we are better for <laughs> for some aspects and uh, and of course we have to admit that in a in an authoritarian society, WikiLeaks couldn't have published these documents at all. They would have been killed by, by you know, by killers. Uh, very, very likely, they the documents wouldn't be online. And yet, after thirteen years, they are online. So, in a sense, we are better, definitely. But in another sense, uh, these people are completely above the law. They are completely, uh, you know, untouchable. They are untouchable. That's uh, that's uh, it's a matter of fact, and they are criminals, absolutely criminals. So there is no other words for uh, for calling someone who goes around uh, kidnapping, torturing, killing extrajudicially uh, people and uh, not uh, being accountable to anyone. You know. And as you point out, this is trying to reveal the iron fist with uh, in, inside of the velvet glove. We have been speaking with investigative journalist for The Daily, Il Fato Quotidiano, uh, Stefania Marizzi, who is author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. One last question for you, Stefania. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is called The Question from Hell, because it's the question you we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write, I want to live in a society where secret power power is accountable to the law and the public for its atrocities. And this leads into your most recent response. But wouldn't secret power simply just change the law to allow for atrocities? Considering secret power has influence over the law, how much can we depend on the law to bring justice to people like Julian Assange and those at WikiLeaks who strive to reveal state secrets of crimes and corruption? Can the law protect us from the government the military-industrial complex, the military-intelligence complex, 
and powerful economic interests. On the on the one end, I would say yes, because as I said, the Italian prosecutors were able to nail the CIA agents. They were able to put them on trial, to charge them, to put them on trial, and to uh, to convict them. So on the one end, the law is <laughs> is still protecting us. On the other end, this power is so you know is so uh, unaccountable, so above the law that he can always find ways to uh, to corrupt justice to corrupt the politicians to and so we are in troubles absolutely and that's why i think the solution to the julian assange case uh, is will not come from the law will not come from the british courts who which basically have uh, the, uh, the <laughs> are part of the problems because for the last 13 years whatever it has been done against Julian Assange has been done legally i mean it was the the swedish case has been conducted legally the the charges uh, um the espionage act charges has have been uh, uh, have been filed legally and they go through a legal process the extradition case goes to a legal process, but uh, you know the the court, the, the justice have been perverted, and I don't have any you know any uh, confidence that he can win the case um, legally. Maybe at the European Court of Human Rights, but then once he has a, even if he has a good sentence, so it's a, a sentence in his favor, and I'm quite optimistic about the European Court of Human Rights because we have records of the human uh, human the European Court of Human Rights uh, ruling against intelligence agencies, uh, uh, against the CIA, and so on. So even if he wins at the European Court of Human rights uh, it remains to be seen what the Euro the British politicians the British government will do after the European Court of Human Rights ruling so I don't have confidence about a legal solution to this case but I still have confidence in the public pressure on the UK and US authorities. That's why I take every opportunity to talk to the UK media and US media about this case, because unless people wake up, unless people oppose these, um, uh, you know, this uh, monstrous injustice, as Ken Loach called it in, my, in, the, in his foreword to my book, Unless the people act, uh, he won't win. He will be dead. I mean, the, the moment, I'm sure, the moment he leaves the European soil, the moment he leaves uh, London, he's gone. Julian Assange is gone. I have, I'm sure the moment he gets extradited to the U.S., he's dead. Mentally, uh, politically, professionally, he's dead. On that incredibly sad note, Stefania, I cannot thank you enough for returning to our show. It is always a pleasure speaking with you. I promise it won't be six years until our next conversation. I'll be contacting you in the very near future so we can continue this uh, discussion that is not happening, unfortunately, here in the United States. Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your work. I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you to you, and I'm very happy to talk to you whenever you, you want to do it. All right. Thank you very much, Stefani. Enjoy the rest of your week. 
You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Man, we got to get Stefania back on the show, live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. And it appears that to some degree, we've forgotten the value of a free press, transparency, honesty, democracy, and justice. Because when it comes to what the United States, its leadership, its media, and with public complicity, has done to Julian Assange, it's clear none of those are true American values anymore, whether it's free press, transparency, honesty, democracy, or justice. We can say they are American values, but without putting actions behind those words, none of those are truly American values. If our conversation with Stefania reminded you of just that, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by just going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us the rest of our listeners' responses so far. Well, the question from from hell this week is, what special kind of hell should Henry Kissinger suffer for all eternity? Sweet. It's a good question from hell. Thank you, Pete. And uh, let's see here. We got some answers. We got some good ones here in, uh, let's see, in Discord. Sweet. Uh, Jessica wrote, acrylic nails. (laughs) I didn't get that. Don't know what she's talking about. She even gives us an emoji for somebody painting their nails with acrylic nail polish. I have to ask Jessica what that meant. And then Kim wrote, "He is forever shunned at all the 1970s-style Hollywood parties like Dershowitz at Martha's Vineyard 2022." I like that one. That's good. Dig Dug wrote, "F it, man. Just put him in a regular, average. This is hell. <laughs> I keep trying to imagine worse than we've got, but real life keeps outpacing me." Yes, it does. He wrote. Eternally dropping his glasses into the toilet. <laughs> that is a good one. That's a very good one. And Mark wrote that feeling wondering if the acid has kicked in yet forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really good one, Mark. Very good. Um, I can relate to that. Um, anyway. <laughs> or cell phone. It doesn't matter. Cell phone or glasses. <laughs> uh, Cosmic uh, Mantis wrote, shoved into a cannon and blown out of it forever and ever for all eternity. <laughs> that's a good one, too. And there's some other ones. There's one Chris wrote on Twitter. He can only eat pho. <laughs> That's kind of mean. And let's see here. From Welcome to the Hellhole, Brendan wrote, How about he is physically immortal and spends eternity experiencing being murdered in the manner of every single one of his victims worldwide, one after the other? I like that. That's a quite hardcore. Uh, Brayden wrote, Exactly Prometheus, but the eagles have the faces of his victims. Wow. All right. Paolo wrote, one plane with all passengers being crying babies. Oh, and the pilot is also a baby. <laughs> the pilot is also a baby really got me. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the vision the visual. That's Thank you, Paolo. That's all the way from London. Anything else? Uh, I think that's all we got for the time being. So, uh, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this week on Patreon, every so often, we take a moment here on This Is Hell to consider what it is that we have recently learned on the show. So, we take an inventory. 
by going back through the most recent episodes and seeing exactly what we discovered from our guests in the past few months. We did this here on Patreon back in August, uh, which uh, means this week on Patreon we are considering and reconsidering what our guests have told us over the past four months. In two th- also on Patreon, in 2007, the staff of This Is Hell picked their favorite interviews of the year. The interview that I picked was a conversation we did way back on uh, June 30th, 2007, and we're going to be playing that during Patreon uh, tomorrow. That conversation was with Roger Morris, who was on to discuss his three-part series on the history of U.S. intelligence and President George W. Bush's defense secretary at the time, Robert Gates. Gates would keep that position for the first three years of the Obama administration as well, because, you know, the Bush administration foreign policy was so freaking great that Barack Obama had to continue it. I don't know. I have no idea why. But Roger has an amazing career. He served in the Foreign Service and on the senior staff of the National Security Council under Presidents Johnson and Nixon before resigning over the invasion of Cambodia. He was one of only three officials comprising Henry Kissinger's special project staff conducting the initial highly secret back-channel negotiations with Hanoi to end the war in Vietnam. He was also CIA director under George H.W. Gates was also a CIA director under George H.W. Bush. And get this, Roger did not like Robert Gates. So you can hear that interview as well during Patreon tomorrow. But the only way you can do all that is by going to patreon.com slash this is hell and subscribing coming up jeff with the moment of truth the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell if there are any more we'll be announcing this week's winner we'll tell you what's happening on next week's show you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell i know you have jefe on the line Welcome to The Knocking Show. The Broken Brain, Part 3, Red Pill Redemption. We spent the past two weeks describing and categorizing another human species currently living contemporaneously alongside us Homo sapiens. Like the Homo neanderthalensis and Homo denisova before them, the Homo pusker stanculus, or stanks, are both material and metaphorical. I am most certainly aware that the Pusker Stankles, as a species apart from ours, represent a possibly dehumanizing rhetorical instrument, even given the stipulation that they are technically human. Historians, ethicists, moralists, and philosophers have gone to great lengths to drive home an understanding that the Nazis the most reviled social organization in modern history, were not monsters. Viewing them as inhuman would be too easy, these teachers admonish us. We must understand them as humans, kin unto ourselves, because only then can we prevent ourselves and our societies from repeating their ghastly crimes. Unfortunately, Humans have since bifurcated into two groups of hominins. The Homo sapiens tried to grapple with the humanizing lesson while nevertheless putting the extermination policies of the Nazis in a category of unacceptably vile human activity. The Homo pusker stanculus 
on the other hand, contorted the lesson in order to justify one of two wrong conclusions. The Nazis were somehow to be looked up to as fighting bravely to maintain their exceptional human traits. Or they were at worst guilty of committing crimes they weren't morally qualified to perpetrate, those crimes being reserved for the morally competent peoples who understood themselves as having been sufficiently persecuted to earn the license to persecute others. Now, it might seem a bridge too far to classify those who've learned the wrong lessons about kinship with the Nazis as an entirely different species. The evidence, however, when examined meticulously, is persuasive. I'm sure you'll agree, unless you're a Puskerstankel. Admittedly, there are numerous examples of us homo sapiens who, when faced with an aspect of reality that departs from our prejudgments, fail to correct our thinking, whether through mental laziness or merely out of recidivism born of habit. But the homo puskerstankulus does not merely fail to correct their thinking, nor do they merely refuse or resist correcting their thinking. The hallmark of the Pusker Stankel is an inability to perceive any reality counterintuitive to the one in which they've imagined themselves. It's not that they refuse to consider an alternative view, explanation, or description. They are simply incapable of such consideration. That is the main distinguishing characteristic between Homo S and Homo P. Homo P lack the ability to consider evidence of any narrative reality once they've labeled it false, a hoax, or even the media putting one over on the public. One might even be persuaded that Homo P are incapable of belief in reality independent of mental narrative to any degree at all. It's impossible not to be reminded of the distinction made by an apparatchik in the W. Bush administration between whatever failed conjurers populated that mystical executive environment and what they called the reality-based community. Take a recently proposed adjustment to protections of drinking water, stipulating that any proposed regulations can only apply to water that can be seen. Groundwater, the water table, artesian wells, any water that is hidden from the human eye would not be protected. It's almost as if Homo P haven't yet developed the concept of object permanence a baby learns that allows it to be fascinated by sleight of hand magic. Homo P assume their beliefs create or mold reality, which they hold prevents them from being fooled, while to them, Homo S are slaves to a reality that owes a large part of its existence to cumbersome, testable evidence. It's important to understand that a Homo S can be persuaded to think like a Homo P, and vice versa, at least for a brief amount of time. The podcast, Conspirituality, which examines the intersection between New Age beliefs and sociopathic conspiracy theories, recently ran an interview with a woman for whom the edifice of pusker stankular reality fell apart. By understanding the ways in which charlatans had been lying to her, she gradually returned her manner of viewing the world to that of Homo sapiens. There's nothing in human nature that is rigidly predestined. We all possess at least the delusion of free will, and within those limited parameters reside myriad human possibilities. Far from dehumanizing the MAGA or the Q-pilled or even the tankies, this new way of looking at them 
actually rehumanizes them. We need no longer wonder how a human being with human faculties can believe the earth is flat, or that it would be even the least bit advisable to allow Donald Trump anywhere near the White House ever again, or that massacring civilians or murdering them at law enforced traffic stops is legitimate self-defense, or that Hillary Clinton is trafficking child sex slaves from the basement of a pizza parlor, or that it was necessary to return to the business of destroying the planet and our own souls simply because the owning class was afraid of the implications funding the pandemic lockdown might have on the global understanding of overall wealth distribution. It's not that they aren't human beings. It's not that they're crazy human beings. It's not that they're stupid human beings. It's not that they're uneducated or unreasonable human beings. It's not that they're evil human beings. It's that they're a species of human that perceives reality differently from the way our species does. So for the holidays, allow me to give you this gift of redemption for humanity. Even the part of humanity it might seem impossible to understand or share a common thought with. Please accept the two contemporaneous human species explanation. I think it may be the only way forward for us all. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! For God's sake, let that person out of your basement. No. They did a bad thing, Chuck, and they must be punished. <laughs> okay, until next week. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, I can't. Live from land stolen from the... <laughs> you can't. Just to work on it. You can do it. All right, all right. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, and Sac's, Sac and Fox peoples. This is Hell. Chris, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell? This week's question from Hell is what special kind of Hell should Henry Kissinger suffer for all eternity? And we got through all the answers, right? Yes. Uh, so I'm going to just pick the one that I think is the favorite, the one that you had the best response to, uh, and that is Mark A. saying that feeling, wondering if the asset had kicked in yet forever. I think that's a really great uh, answer to this week's question from hell. Mark A., congratulations. All you have to do is just send us your mailing address, and we will send you whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like, or you can just drop by during office hours, which are happening tonight, Wednesday. Uh, what is the date today? December 6th, happening at 6 p.m. They happen every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. And don't forget to join us for on Winter Solstice Eve on December 20th for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party as well. It all happens over at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. My answer to this week's question from hell, what special kind of hell should Kissinger suffer for all eternity? Look, I do not speak ill of the dead. But it's okay in this case because I'm absolutely 100% certain Henry Kissinger still walks the earth as he has been undead for a majority of what we think was his life. Henry Kissinger is a vampire. We all need to steel ourselves against all of the laudatory comments and remarks that will be made about him in the coming days by his many minions. It is now that they will reveal themselves as Kissinger's army of the undead. Beware them and take note. Thanks everyone who sent in their answers to this week's question from hell. Chris, what interviews are we playing during uh, Best of 2023 next week? Uh, so just um, just a quick sh um, just a quick shout out to, th uh, to and a thanks to Ashwin, Ray, Hugh, and Jen, David, uh, David and Will for suggesting next week's guests. 
And uh, the, we start the week on Tuesday by playing our interview with the Jewish Currents Editor-in-Chief Ariel uh, Angel on her essay, We Cannot Cross Until We Carry Each Other, about Israeli-Palestinian solidarity in the wake of October 7th. That was an intense conversation. Go ahead. And uh, Wednesday, we're sharing our conversation with Alan Gubert on American agriculture is about money, not food. So many people, I was really shocked by how many people contacted us and said that that was their favorite interview of 2023. So uh, hats off to you, Alan. And Alan said that he'd be willing to come back on the show at any time. And who's our final, what's the final interview next week? And Thursday, we are playing our talk with Joe Goldie on her Boston Review article, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. Yeah, a lot of people like that one, too. Also, Seb Vupper will be uh, sharing another past inside the present. Ronaldo Magaldi will be giving us some more rotten history. Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver a moment of truth. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Chris Colfan. Chris, thank you so much for producing this week. And Will Ippen, thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, and Jeff. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when we remember what we've learned over the last several months here on This Is Hell. And we're playing an interview with a guy who resigned from the National Security Council over Kissinger's bombing of Cambodia. Again, This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, are happening tonight. They return tonight for the first time in three weeks at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And again, don't forget, our This Is Hell holiday office party is happening on Wednesday, December 20th, winter solstice eve, also at Carrie's Lounge. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcasting host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've uh, explained to you, described to you, or talked to you about on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and then saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.